0: Hey everyone, welcome to Evangel Church Online, a safe place for everyone to explore faith in Jesus, receive his love, and look more and more like him each day. And today, I want to ask you the question What do you do after you've gone through the craziest roller coaster experience of life? Hey guys, my name is Lucas, I'm one of the pastors here at Evangel Church in beautiful Powell River, British Columbia. And I want to ask you a a very important question. Now for some of you, the answer to this question will give you kind of a lot of life. You'll be very excited about it. Uh, For others, maybe not so excited. It may upset you a little bit. So you've been forewarned. But the question is this, what do you do after you've been on the craziest roller coaster of your life? I'm not talking about a literal roller coaster. I'm talking about the ups and downs of life. I want to throw a hypothetical at you. Let's say you were picked out of obscurity by the greatest teacher that ever lived. And he wants to teach you. And so you spend your time following this person, growing in your learning and your understanding of the world around you. Now, over time, you start going, hey, this could be the son of God. This could be the Messiah, the, the one that's sent by God to save humanity. This is, this is beginning to come significant. Now, you ride the high of like the triumphal entry. He, he goes into Jerusalem. His name is Jesus. And 2.7 million people uh, have descended on that city for Passover. And many of them are out on the streets yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And there's this great movement, this great groundswell happening. And you, you felt the highs of that moment. But then things kind of take a turn. You feel the betrayal of one of your own. Um, Jesus is arrested and falsely accused. And ultimately he's crucified he dies on a cross, which was a sinner's death. It was, it was, it was a death of, of, of great shame. Then you witness his burial and, and, and you go through the grieving and the lows of mourning and grieving that loss, only to then, uh, three days later, have him appear to you in resurrected form and you're back on that high, right? What do you do after all of that? You go fishing. You go fishing. Hey, amen. Some of you are like, hey, let's just, you know, James says, go be doers of the word. Uh, let's get going. Let's do that. But this is what the disciples did. Seven of the disciples, after all of this, after this entire experience, they go fishing. And so if you're new with us, we're in a series called the Gospel of John. We're in the last chapter of that gospel, chapter 21. We're going to be starting 1 to 14. And so if you need a Bible, I would love to get a Bible and resource you with that. Visit myevangel.church forward slash Bible so you can follow along with us. But last week we concluded with verses 30 to 31 of of chapter 20, where John kind of concludes the purpose of his gospel uh, to convince you that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, and that in him, that's where you find life. So that was the purpose of John writing this gospel that we've been going through. Now, some believe that chapter 21 now was written at a later time. Uh, Some believe it was written by somebody else because there's some kind of um, inconsistencies in terms of the words that John uses in his writing. But, But I don't think that's necessarily the case. I think John has summarized in the end of chapter 20 what his purpose was. But I think like any good kind of book, this is now an epilogue. This is where John is seeking to um, tie up some of the loose ends within this story arc that he kind of walked in. Now that arc, that story arc was very much about presenting Jesus as the Messiah and and that you would would come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But now... Chapter 21, he wants to kind of tie up some loose ends. So if you have your Bibles, let's jump into John 21, starting at verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, the Sea of Tiberius is also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin... Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were fishing together, together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. Some of you are saying amen. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got in the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Now I love this kind of moment in history so much. There's something so real and relatable to this moment. Notice a few things. Uh, First, Thomas, you know, remember Honest Thomas? (laughs) We know him as Doubting Thomas. Um, Thomas is now with these guys. If you you recall, we kind of dealt with last week the fact that Thomas had chosen to deal with the loss of Jesus on his own. And now instead of being on his own, he's kind of learned his lesson. He missed the revelation of Jesus that first time. He's not going to do that again. He's with some of these other disciples. So he's one of the seven that are out fishing during the night. Some have read this to argue that Peter and these other disciples kind of apostated themselves. They kind of walked away from the calling. They, they went back to what they knew. They went back to their career. Uh, I don't think that's what's going on here. This is just simply them going out for a night of fishing. Um, there is a level of obedience that they're actually walking in, being back in Galilee, back in kind of their hometown area. Now, uh, if you read Mark fourteen twenty eight, 28, uh, Jesus says this to But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Uh, Again in Mark, the angels tell Mary Magdalene the same thing in in chapter 16, verse 7. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. And so Jesus is kind of given some clues that he is going to appear to them in Galilee. And so they go to Galilee, but instead of just being idle, instead of just sitting around waiting, they go fishing. Now, Peter and the six, they've been faithful to to the calling to return to Galilee from Jerusalem. And night fishing, uh, interestingly enough, I I had to do a little research on this. Uh, Night fishing was the... The best way to catch fish in the Sea of Galilee, by net. So they weren't fishing like we know fishing. They're fishing by net. And so they're out there fishing the Sea of Galilee. Now, as far as they know, as they're fishing, a stranger shows up. And and this stranger on the shore does what every fisherman loves. He tells them how to fish. (laughs) I know, every fisherman loves that, right? He tells them how to fish. If we go to verse 4, Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? They answered him, No. He said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in, because of the quantity of fish. If you're taking notes, write this down. When you fish the way the master tells you to fish, you will catch fish. If you fish the way the master tells you to fish, you will catch fish. Now, how many know that this chapter, this kind of moment is analogous? It's it's an analogy, It's, it's more than just fishing. And, and we get that and we understand that because we can go back and look at the call that Jesus placed upon Peter and the sons of Zebedee, which would have been James and John, earlier in the, the moment that Jesus presented himself to them and called them to follow him. That's in Luke 5, 4 to 11. So to really understand this, to unpack this, we're not just talking about fish here. We're talking about a deeper meaning that John is trying to convey. So Luke 5, 4 to 11. Let's see kind of this moment of God calling, Jesus calling these men. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we have toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Okay, note, John's the one writing this gospel um, that we're reading and going through. This, this, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and they followed him. From now on, you will be catching people. I want you to consider kind of the circumstances of both of these moments. In both accounts, Jesus tells professional fishermen how to fish. You know, if catching fish from this story in this account is analogous with catching people, then the lesson for us is it's only done when, when we are effective in listening to the master. It's only done at an optimal time and an optimal level when we are listening to the voice of the master. Here's the the deal friends, we live in a day and age, we have so many studies and techniques and tips and tricks and sociological studies and psychology studies and, and we can kind of take all these things. we try to create these methods and these ways to present the gospel to the world, right? But the reality is, in in a time and a season, in the Western church in particular, when we have so many seminars on it, methods on it, ways about going and doing it, we are probably doing worse than we've ever done in terms of evangelism and proclaiming the gospel and seeing people come to Christ. That's just a fact. That's just where we're at. You go to the third world. You go to places in this world where uh, the gospel is all that they have. That's not the case. The case is there. They're seeing revival and they're seeing people come to Jesus in droves. So what's going on? Well, I think I'm a little bit guilty of this idea that when you interact with someone with the gospel, you have, to, you have to give it to them, you know, both barrels. You got to make sure it's all like lined up and you got every, every kind of part and step uh, all situated and set up. Um, to, to my shame, I, I, I had this moment even a few years ago, the first year actually that we were here in Powell River, I had uh, someone reach out to me and they wanted to have a coffee. And so I went for a coffee and this person was, didn't know Jesus, but was exploring and interested And so i sat at that coffee and i i kind of felt like maybe this is the only opportunity i have so i just gave it to this guy both barrels uh not in a rude obnoxious way but but certainly in an agenda driven i want to cover all the bases of the gospel take you through all the steps make you understand your need and all the things right and I kind of left that and I kind of kicked myself because as I left that I kind of felt the spirit say you know what this this guy just wanted you to listen this this guy just wanted to be known by you and you you killed that by pushing your agenda and pushing your methods and pushing trying to get you know the four spiritual laws and the Roman Road and all the things nailed down for this guy in an hour coffee break, um, and I, I kind of took the the burden of leading to this this individual to Jesus upon myself, and that's not the way the gospel and evangelism work. It's not upon me to lead anyone to Jesus. It's simply upon me to be. Uh, available and to tell my story and to answer questions as questions arise and to uh, proclaim when appropriate and 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 walk in sensitivity to that. And I kind of ask the question, why do I get like this? And I think that Jesus, in, in this moment, he's he's teaching us to listen to his voice. Right? Why did they? Why did the disciples catch this big load of fish? Well, it's because they were obedient to the voice. Of Jesus. Now, here's the deal. These are professional fishermen. So I think in some ways, Jesus was setting them up for a lesson here, a hard lesson, but a lesson that he is truly the, the master angler. He knows the path to salvation that everyone will accept. Everyone who's called, he knows the, the way in which to uh, present the gospel, in, in, in which to reveal Jesus, in which to pursue them with love. And we just need to be those that listen to his voice and stop leaning on our strategies and our formulas for evangelism. Here's the best I can do for for a strategy of evangelism. If I had to break it down into a formula, okay, this this is the best that I can do. Number one, know the gospel. Know the gospel message. If if you look in our newsletter, for those of you online, um, if you come in person, you get a newsletter and we have an article there that kind of breaks down the steps, the the understanding, the unpacking of salvation in Christ Jesus. But know the gospel, understand the gospel, understand your salvation. Number two, know the Christ of the gospel. And I'm not just talking about your knowledge of him and your understanding of him. I mean, be in a progressing relationship with Jesus. Be in a growing, intimate relationship with your Savior. That's going to be so key. Be in the Word, be in prayer, learn to hear His voice in your life. So, know the gospel, know the Christ of the gospel, be in proximity to people. Be in proximity to people. We are so so good at creating our own little comfort zones. And sometimes you'll find Christian believers who don't know anybody that isn't a Christian. You know what? Part of our calling is to be in proximity to this world. We, We live in this world. We're not of it, but we live in it. Be in proximity to people that are searching for truth in this world. Number four, be present with those people. Here's what I mean by that. There's a big difference between approaching relationship with someone that's agenda-driven versus approaching relationship to know someone. To be present with someone. To listen to their story. To seek to understand them. So be present with people. And then finally, listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus before throwing the net. Listen to Jesus before throwing the net. He knows. He knows that individual. He knows those people you're surrounding yourself with. He knows what it's going to take to call them and invite them into a relationship with him. So be present, be in proximity, know the Christ of the gospel, know the gospel and understand your salvation, but ultimately wait and hear the voice of the spirit. Where do you throw that net? That's the best I have for you. That's the best strategy. That's the best. And that's going to look so different in every single circumstance. And that's the whole point. There is no formula. There is no formula to to salvation. There's a mystery in salvation. And we need to. We need to be hearing the voice of the Spirit that, that knows and sees clearly, even in the mystery, of what it takes to call someone and invite someone into relationship with Jesus. So that's the best I have for you. Let's go on to verse seven. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea and other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread this is now the third time that Jesus was re- revealed to the disciples after He raised them from, raised from the dead. Now, John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, um, he's present for both, the, the account in Luke that first time that they caught, and now for this one. He's present for both of them. So in this moment, as they catch these fish, he's, he recalls the, the history that he has with Jesus. And, and he recalls this moment. He says, this is the Lord. Like he has enough um, uh, perspective and understanding to know, you know, this guy, this guy on the shore that we don't know who it is, that, that's Jesus. Um, and it's in this moment that Peter does something that maybe we would think is a little strange. He would have been uh, prepped for work. So in other words, he wouldn't have been naked necessarily. He would have had like a loincloth or he would have had his outer garment down around his waist and then tied up around his loins. So just so he can work the nets and have all of his limbs kind of free and clear and ready to go. So what he does in this moment is he puts on, so whether he untucks and and puts on his outer garment or he literally grabs his outer garment and puts it on, and then he dives into the water. Now, we might think, why in the world, if you're already basically in swim trunks, why would you put on something to dive into the water to swim 100 yards ashore to greet someone. Now, the best that I could do to explain this moment is actually found in Barclay's uh, commentary on John. And he says, He was not actually naked, he was wearing a loincloth as a fisher always was when he plied his trade. Now, it was the Jewish law that to offer greeting was a religious act. And to carry out a religious act, a man must be clothed. So, Peter, before he set out to come to Jesus, put on his fisherman's tunic. For he wished to be the first to greet his Lord. There there is a level of reverence and respect that Peter wants to show Jesus. But he also wants to get to Jesus as fast as he can. So this is the best he could come up with. Put on his outer garment, reverence and respect, but also dive into the world. The zeal and this passion to to know Jesus and to be with Jesus. And I, I love Peter's enthusiasm But there's also kind of something else going on here. Uh, Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. Now notice this. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, this is kind of a strange moment. Because if they know it's the Lord, why would they even be tempted to ask him? And I think the clue is, is in the fact that this is not Jesus as they knew Him before. This is Jesus being glorified. This is Jesus not—he's in a body of flesh and blood, but it's—it's it's a body of flesh and blood that's but untouched by this world. Uh, he is being glorified. And there's something different about Jesus in this moment, and, and this—this kind of wouldn't have stopped the disciples in the past. Like they—they they came and asked with boldness, like really dumb questions sometimes of Jesus. But there seems to be kind of an awe here. There's a dynamic of reverence and awe and respect that they are carrying in this moment as they interact with Jesus and have breakfast with him on the beach. You know, between Peter respectfully putting on his garment and the others walking in such reverence, I can't help but think, have we taken our attitude towards Jesus um, to a much too casual place. Do we, are we too casual and cavalier when it comes to how we interact with, talk about, and express our relationship with Jesus? Is it possible that we need to, to walk in a place of balance as, as we approach Jesus, yes, as our friend, but also as king of all Kings, king of the universe, that, that perhaps we're too cavalier with his name. Uh, we make jokes and we make kind of snide comments and we we all I'll pray for you in Jesus name. And it's kind of a joke. It's lighthearted. And I wonder if sometimes we are just too cavalier with his name. And I get that he's your friend, but he's also the one that the elders of heaven prosper prostrate themselves on the ground before as they worship him he's our savior but he's also the righteous judge you know he spent three and a half years with these disciples but in this moment even those disciples that had like the most intimate relationship with jesus they're coming to him with a a reverence and, and an awe and a respect that that wasn't even there in that way before i think that it is possible That we can walk in intimacy and familiarity with Jesus while still maintaining a deep, deep level of reverence and awe and respect in his presence. I think we can do both. We can hold those both in tension. I want to close with this thought. Now, before I do, I I do want to say that I'm aware that I'm I am stretching the bounds of this analogy a little bit. I get that. And it's not that I'm going to talk about the the number of fish, you know, 153. There have been many scholars and theologians that have tried to make sense of that number. Uh, At the end of the day, they do a lot of acrobatics to kind of get there. Uh, I'm not kind of there. I'm not with that. I think, here's the deal, guys these are fishermen. And as you know, if you catch the biggest fish of your life, what do you do? You make sure you weigh that sucker and you measure that sucker so you have the facts for the story, right? And you take a picture to confirm it. Uh, these these disciples, these fishermen, they're no different. They caught a, a major catch. And so they're making sure, I'm going to count all these fish. Let's see what we got. Um, it's also not really... Where we're talking about the net not breaking. You could kind of push the analogy into that. The net didn't break. The net broke the first time in Luke's account. But here the net didn't break. And one could argue this speaks to kind of the fact that when we proclaim the gospel as Jesus calls us to proclaim. And in the right moments, in the right times. That those that he calls by his spirit with the gospel will not be lost. Not one will be lost. That he is going to pursue and reach and and convert and reveal himself to those that he's calling. So not one will be lost. But that's not what we want to talk about. We want to talk about um, Jesus' invitation here to the disciples. I don't know if you noticed this. In verse 9, When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. If you got a Bible, underline that. Bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Bring the, some of the fish. Bring some of the fish that you caught. Um... You know, Jesus already has fish and bread prepared. Now, here's the deal. Jesus is Jesus. I mean, he could have multiplied what he already had prepared to make sure all of the disciples were fed. He could have had the foresight to know how many disciples, how many fish, how much bread he would need to do this. But instead, he makes this invitation. He invites the disciples to contribute to the breakfast. And here's the significance. Jesus invites us to contribute to his work in this world. He he invites us to contribute to his work in establishing his kingdom in this world. And that's kind of an unreal thought to really dwell on and to really think about. Because does Jesus need us to reveal himself to the world? The answer is no. He does not need us to reveal himself to the world. He could reveal himself apart from us. And yet, he invites us to contribute to the mission of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. He invites us into purpose. And I love this. I love this. He doesn't do it because he needs us. He does it because he knows that being invited into profound purpose is going to change us in the best way. It's going to call us to self sacrifice for a greater cause. It's going to call us to to become better in our own walk with him so that we can be poured out in this world. He invites us into purpose. And there's nothing more powerful than being part of great purpose. There, that, that's where fulfillment is found. The purpose is what inspires us to sacrifice. It grows something in us that would otherwise uh, be untapped. Purpose keeps us going when things get really hard in this world. And Jesus knew that we needed more than just a salvation We needed to be invited back into our design. Worship God. Proclaim the gospel. Anticipate with joy and hope his next coming. And then walk in the reward of our work in this world. Jesus doesn't need us to perpetuate and proclaim the gospel. But he knows that we need the invitation to be a part of something bigger than ourselves. He knows that the potential that He's placed in us comes out as we walk in that great purpose. But here's the deal, friends. As I kind of alluded earlier, like we're kind of hitting a wall. As a church in the West, evangelism is is not what it used to be. Uh, Not that what it used to be was all great either. Uh, There were some methods of evangelism that... Kind of make us hang our head in shame a little bit. But our effectiveness, it's not great. So, So what's going on? I would like to read a study for you from Barna. This is all about proclaiming the gospel. Telling people about Jesus and their need for Jesus. Telling people about your story and how he saved you from your own brokenness. And, and invited you into a greater purpose and a greater understanding of the world around us. But here's, a, here's some, here's some uh, stats, some study from Barna Group, as well as from Alpha USA. Almost all practicing Christians believe that part of their faith means being a witness about Jesus, ranging from 95% to 97% among all generational groups. And that the best thing that could ever happen to someone is for them to know Jesus. So 94% to 97% across generational groups agreed with that. Okay, so we're okay there. We're on the right track. Millennials in particular feel equipped to share their faith with others. For instance, almost three quarters say that they know how to respond when someone raises questions about faith. So at a number of 73% of those polled that they are gifted at sharing their faith with other people. Again, 73% are confident that they could share their faith with other people. This is higher than any other generational group. Gen X at 66%. Boomers at 59%. And elders at 56%. Now here's where things go really sideways. Particularly for my generation. If you're a millennial. Uh, or even uh, Gen Z. Um, this is where things go a little sideways. Despite this, many millennials are unsure about the actual practice of evangelism. Almost half of millennials, 47% agree, at least somewhat, that it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. This is compared to a little over one quarter of Gen X at 27% and one in five boomers at 19% and elders at 20%. So so why why is this? Why does my generation feel that it is somewhat unethical to proclaim Jesus to those of other belief systems in this world? Um, I think that perhaps... It's a reaction to some of the methodologies and the practices that we've witnessed. Uh, Not all of them have been great, guys. Let's just be honest. Not all of them have been great. Uh, Perhaps it's because we live in a society that values, um, quite frankly, an unsustainable form of tolerance as a very high value within our culture and society. Um, Could it be that we have made things so comfortable that we don't wanna make someone else uncomfortable and as a result ourselves be uncomfortable. I, I think there's there's a level that uncomfortableness is we are not good at being uncomfortable. But but friends, the primary function of the church, the like the primary, like the number one function of the church, of believers in Jesus is to make Jesus and his work of salvation known to the world. So so what's the answer for us in this cultural moment? What is the answer for us? Let's be those that know the Jesus of scripture. Let's be those that know him, not of him, but know him, intimacy, growing in relationship with him, who understand the word of God. We need to have a deep understanding of the word of God. If we're going to live in this world and not be of it. Those who listen to people. We need to listen better guys. We need to hear people's stories before we jam the gospel down people's throats. We need to. (laughs) We need to shut up and listen. I, I think that your pursuit of an agenda driven gospel is not helping. We need to simply be there for people in a very real and authentic way to know them and to be known by them. And this is something that we need to overcome, not agenda-driven, though we do. Our our heart's desire is that they meet Jesus and know Jesus. But we need to come from a place of humanity, a place of knowing people and, and knowing that they can trust you and be vulnerable with you and have doubts and skepticism and questions and all those things. We, we, we need to become safe places for people to explore faith in Jesus. And then finally, we need to be people to hear the voice of Jesus telling us when and where to cast the net. That we, we, It's His work. It's the Spirit's work to reveal Jesus. And if we're going to be tools and we're going to be a part of it, we need to listen to His voice. Cast the net on the right side of the boat. And they did, and they caught. We need to hear the voice of the Master. I want to close with the words of David Kinneman. Now, he's the president of Barner Group that brought us these statistics. And within uh, the presentation of these statistics, there's an article in which he writes these words Cultivating deep, steady, resilient Christian conviction, Kinneman concludes, is difficult. In a world of (laughs) you-do-you. And don't criticize anyone's life choices. And emotivism. The feeling's first priority that our culture makes a way of life. As much as ever, evangelism isn't just about saving the unsaved. But reminding ourselves... That this stuff matters. That the Bible is trustworthy. And that Jesus changes everything. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? So let's pray. Lord, we need to be inspired again with this invitation you give us to be a part of your kingdom purposes in this world. And Lord, we know the first priority of the church, it's not about us. (laughs) Lord, forgive us when we make it so much about us and what we want and how we can be comfortable within our own faith. Lord, we are are seeking, Lord, something so much bigger and better than that, Lord God. We wanna be those that are used to proclaim the gospel in this world. But we also wanna be safe places for everyone to explore faith. And Lord, and our prayer would be that they'd ultimately receive your love in a life changing way and begin that journey of looking more and more like you. But Lord, would you help us to be evangelists in this world? Those that share our story, those that share the witness of the hope that you've given us. So God, would you, would you convict us? Would you convince us would you, Lord, cause us to look out into our society, into our town, into our world, and see that the fields are white for the harvest. that you are calling people, but Lord, you are looking for those that will go, and those that will proclaim, and those that will uh, be in proximity to people who don't yet know Jesus. And that, Lord, we will be those that are known by them, and, and, and that we know them. And we create these safe places of relationship and intimacy. So Lord, help us. Lord, not with a methodology, but Lord, help us to just hear your voice. Help us to be obedient when you tell us to cast the net. So Lord, we pray that you would continue to build your church. And that, Lord, the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And that, Lord God, you would take us into a new moment and season of seeing more and more know the great news that Jesus, you are the Son of God, and that Lord, the thing that we're looking for in this world is found in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Lord, well, I guess it's so appropriate. Um, we are going to be actually taking a moment. It's the first Sunday of the month. Every first Sunday we have communion. Uh, so for those of you that can join us in person, that will be 10 o'clock uh, today. This is being released on July 3rd. But If you can't join us, stay tuned just for a moment of communion together in